Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. I was reflecting on the fact that I, I sometimes try and cram a little bit too much into, into a week. Um, sometimes I, I'd have a tendency to go too hard, and not just with life, but with other things as well. One of those things is, is the gym. I was talking to Dan and Kat about this just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, back in uni days, I remember uh, deciding that I'd start running at the gym on a treadmill. Um, unfortunately, the only pair of shoes I owned was a pair of Dunlop volleys because I was a poor, a poor med student. And uh, other than like my black shoes that I wore to Prack, I had these Dunlop volleys and they just did everything from indoor soccer to going for walks to, it was, they were just like an all-purpose shoe. And I thought, I'll go on the treadmill, but not only will I go on the treadmill because I go a bit too hard sometimes, I'm going to crank it up to top, top speed, which is I think 20 on the, on the treadmill. I thought, I'm just going to see how fast I can run at treadmill. And, and, the, and the treadmill's just like shaking around like this, you know, like it, it looks like it's going to fall off its hinges. And... and I ended up with shin splints that lasted for about five years, which really put a damper on my running career. Otherwise, I probably would have been famous. Um, the other time, and I don't know what it is about me and exercise, because some of my funniest stories are from exercise, but the time I tried to do squats, um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to get strong. I'm going to get strong. Uh, I, I thought, I'm going to do some squats. So I, I got, jumped in the... We've got a, a you know, forum gym membership, and we go off to the... Jim Kendall's doing whatever she, she does on the bike or whatever. And uh, I jump along to the squat rack and I don't really know what I'm doing because I've never really done it. And I'm there by myself and, and there's no spot or anything on that. So I get the squat bar. It probably wasn't very heavy. Um, it felt heavy. But I, I'm there doing some squats. I do one and it's like, oh, that's pretty heavy. That's all right. You know, okay. I could do another one, do another one. It's all right. It's kind of getting heavier as you go. As you, if anyone who's done squats, you know, it kind of gets harder as you go. And I get down for about my fourth or fifth squat and I can't get back up again. And I'm on, I'm on the ground and I didn't really realise you're supposed to go to this little rack where it'll catch the bar if you fall. I didn't do that. Um, and so I'm stuck there on the ground with this squat, uh, this squat bar on my shoulders and I don't really know what to do. I'm just squished underneath this, this squat. <laughs> There's a room full of like professional gym people, like solid dudes. They, they got you know, arms the size of my waist. Uh, and my waist was smaller then. And, um, and then this guy comes over, he's like, do you need a hand there, mate? I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he comes over, he's, you know, he's, like, he just lifts it with his pinky, basically. He lifts it off my shoulders, puts it back on the squat rack. But it, it, it kind of, it's a, it's a kind of an embarrassing story. But the truth is life sometimes feels a bit like that as well for me. You know, I, I get to the bottom of my squat and I've got this weight on and I'm not really sure how I'm going to get out of it. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do next. I'm not really sure who's going to come along and take that rack, that squat bar off my shoulders and put it back in the rack. And I know the answer, I know the Sunday school answer. But the truth is, in situations like these, I think it can come out sideways, can't it? And maybe in an anger or an ungraciousness, maybe like Jonah, as we'll see in anger, 
maybe falling back into old coping mechanisms. And this has been the demise, I think, of more than one Christian leader in the church. I think it's also been the, the death of the witness of many, many, many Christians, more than we would know. Today, we're going to see what we can learn about Jonah as he finds himself in one of these situations where he's, he's kind of in over his head. And his head's all over the place anyway. But we're also going to see some incredible truths about the nature of the God it is that we serve and how that might inform our response to that. But first, let's pray and invite God to teach us today. Father, uh, I just invite you here right now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, minister to us. Lord, move among us to hear what it is that you want to say to us. Be with us, we pray. Open your word to us in fresh ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the past four weeks, you know, we've been looking at this little book in the Old Testament called Jonah. And Jonah himself, as a bit of a recap, probably wrote this autobiographical book himself. It's set around 800 years before Christ, give or take, and it's part of the Old Testament, so the Jewish Bible. Um, it's found in a collection of books toward the back of the Old Testament uh, called the Minor Prophets, which is not a commentary on their importance, but rather really a commentary on the size. They're all quite small books. You can read them in 20 minutes, 10 minutes even. They're organised roughly in chronological order through the course of the Minor Prophets. Um, now, remember, at this time in history, we're looking at the Bible is really dealing with the nation of Israel. right? But at this time in history, the nation of Israel has divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom known as Israel or Ephraim, sometimes, depending on which author, and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. That's been split since after the time of Solomon, about 930 BC. Solomon, um, Solomon's kingdom was split between uh, Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And... And the, and the southern kingdom has its capital at, at Jerusalem and the northern kingdom has its capital in Samaria. And the northern kingdom, it tends to be wealthier, it tends to be bigger, it tends to be stronger. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's going along pretty well. The problem is they tend also to really have rejected everything good. Uh, every single one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel was an idolater. They practiced idolatry, every single one. Jonah is known as a prophet to this northern kingdom. It's kind of hard to think, I think, of a, of a more challenging job than being a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. I, I imagine job satisfaction amongst the prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel was probably pretty low. Now, you know, you get to the end of the day, it's like, did anyone repent? No. Did the nation start doing the right thing? No. Are they all going to die? Yes. Is God going to judge them? Yes. So it's seen so far that in this book, Jonah has been sent to the people of Assyria, which is not part of Israel. Assyria is, is outside of Israel. They're a Gentile nation, and, and namely to the, the capital of, of Assyria, which is Nineveh, right? And, and we've seen that Nineveh are particularly bad people, worse than Israel, right? Nineveh are particularly bad people. The kind of stuff they've done, it's pretty horrible. You wouldn't want to be there. You wouldn't want to see it. And we've seen so far that Jonah has tried to run away from his call to go to Nineveh. He's, he's been given a mission, he ran away, he jumped on a ship, tried to go to Spain, fell off the, well, got thrown off the ship, right? tried to drown, a fish came and swallowed him and deposited him on the land closer to Nineveh than he was when he started. Right? So he wasn't getting away from the plan. He realises he's not getting away from the plan, so he goes, all right, God, I'll go do it. Second time round. He's just done the mission that God's called him to. 
And that's what Tony taught us about last week. He delivered the message and what did they do? What did Nineveh do? They repented. They repented. Something Israel hadn't done for hundreds of years. They repented. And so we ended last week on a bit of a cliffhanger. Not that you don't know the ending, but Nineveh repented and they were hoping that perhaps God would listen. So that brings us to our text today. Open up to Jonah 3 verse 10. Let's read it. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There are a few technical points here that I'd like to cover before we move on to what it means for us. Number one, in Matthew 12, 41, remember Jesus talks about Nineveh rising up on Judgment Day? They said they would would judge you, talking about the Pharisees, that Nineveh are going to rise up on Judgment Day and judge you because you should have known better. You should have known. That's a message for us, for starters, okay? Because we've, many of us, not all of us, have grown up in the church. I know so many people who've grown up in the church, family and friends, who've taken completely for granted what it means to grow up in the covenant people of God and have rejected it. They might even stay there, say they're still a believer, but they completely reject the truth of what Scripture tells us. And, and Jesus has harsh words for those people. But he says, on the day of judgment, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up against you in judgment. Now, what does that tell us? It means that God's salvation for Nineveh is not just a salvation of their physical selves, not just a political salvation. It means that this is eternal life they're talking about. So Nineveh, not only are they saved as a nation for that period of time, we know they end up going back to their ways and getting judged again later, but that generation turns to the Lord and are in heaven in the future. Second, God relents. Some versions say repent. Indeed, even in the ESV, the Hebrew word is translated as relent here, but elsewhere the same word is translated as repent. That raises the question, how can it be that a perfect all-knowing, all-powerful God needs to repent in our understanding of that word. There are three ways to answer this question. The first is to say that God is either not all-knowing or all-powerful or perfect. I reject that hypothesis based basically on philosophy and scripture. It's completely untrue. We know that God is all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing. The second and third, I think, are both valid attempts to explain this apparent contradiction. The second is that the author employs a device called anthropomorphism, which is basically ascribing to something that's not human, human characteristics. So for example, you might say that the sun was smiling down on you today. It doesn't mean the sun has teeth and a big grin. It means that the, that the sun was shining on you today and it made you feel happy. You might say that the wind was sighing through the trees. It doesn't mean that the wind was literally, uh, you know, Sad. It means the wind was making a noise that kind of sounded a lot like sighing and it, and it maybe reflected something about the mood that you were feeling at that particular time. So anthropomorphism, we ascribe to God these, these characteristics that are characteristic of humans that really can't be applied to non-human beings like God. And that's one possible. The conclusion, I guess, in this instance, it would have been readily understood by the original audience. It wasn't describing God, you know, changing the plan halfway through as if he didn't know what was going to happen, but rather that from a human perspective, things seemed to change. And since we appoint all agency to God, it seems like God has changed, even though technically he hasn't changed. So it's more about the apparent uh, picture to the humans who who are seeing it. 
But the other and my preferred way, I think, of interpreting this verse is by questioning what was meant by the word repent. And this is the path actually taken by the ESV to some extent. Um, they acknowledge that in this instance, the word doesn't mean feeling regret at one's mistake, which is how we normally talk about repentance. Um, or you know, changing your mind, which is again how we talk about repentance. Um, I guess they're, they're saying that there's an apparent change of plans. An apparent change of plans. Not an actual, but an apparent change of plans. No, it's only apparent. And, and, and I guess God always knew what he would do. Because he always knew what Nineveh would do, right? The problem I have with the ESV rendering is that it misses some of the sense of feeling that the Hebrew word, that the Hebrew word is Naham, the Hebrew word has in that word. So there is a sense that this word describes not only an action but an emotion as well. God knows what will happen, but he still feels deeply for those beings who are created in his image. If I watch a sad movie, for example, for a second time, even though I already know when the sad bits are, it doesn't stop me feeling sad when I see it play out again. Right? It's, it's obviously not a perfect analogy, but it's similar with God. He knows what's happening, but it doesn't mean he's not sad about what's happening or happy about what's happening. So although God knows all that will happen, it doesn't prevent him from being moved by them in as much as he enters from eternity into time in those situations. The third point about this verse is that it brings us, I guess, based on that, um, if, that if, if God's actions are dependent on the actions of people, in other words, if they do repent, he forgives, and if they don't repent, then they're judged, what does this say about the sovereignty of God? Especially in relation to human free will. It's a bit heady. We're not going to spend heaps of time here because I don't think it's the most important part of this, but it is. It comes up. We need to address it. Now, just so you know, this is a topic of considerable debate in Christian circles. One important thing to note is that whatever view you take, it doesn't make you more or less of a Christian. In fact, both views are equally accepted as orthodox views within Christianity. The first is that, is that God effectively causes the repentance of the Ninevites, wholly and solely, that it has nothing to do with their own volition. Uh, in essence, they had no choice as God had appointed them to repent in the first place. That's the first view. The second view, and my preferred view, is that humans being created in the image of God were created with the freedom to reject or to accept him and that God works these free decisions that people make into his plans for humanity and for the future. He sees those decisions from eternity past and he works them in to his plan for the universe. Both views hold in high regard what's called in, in theology circles the meticulous providence of God, the meticulous providence, which means that, that he works at the most minute detail to orchestrate all things according to his perfect plans. In that, we can all rest assured that he knows the end from the beginning. He knows where we're headed. He has a plan that will come about for every single situation. He has appointed moments for you today, for me today, for you tomorrow, for me tomorrow. He has appointed moments for us for the rest of our lives. He's even planned for your failure. Do you get that? He's planned for the times that you will fail. He's already seen them and he's already worked them into his perfect plan. So let's rest in his sovereignty in that way. 
But the key message for this verse is the message which Jonah will expound on in the next couple of verses, and that is that God is both gracious and merciful. The take-home message of the whole passage today is in this aspect of God's nature, God's grace and God's mercy. We're going to come back and talk about that in conjunction with Jonah's response a little later. But let's move on to chapter 4, verse 1. And it's an interesting thing that happens. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It's interesting, isn't it? Not quite what you expect from a prophet. A whole country repents. God relents, and Jonah's angry about the things that he should be excited about. Why is he angry? Let's see what he says. 4.2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's basically saying, God, I'm angry that you're good. Right? His belief about Nineveh is the reason he tried to flee Tarshish. It says it right here. We now have the answer to why he fled in the first place. He wasn't reluctant. He wasn't scared. At least they weren't the great motivators. So what is his motivation for running? Now, now John and Dan spent a little time on this, but I want to sit here with it for a little bit because it's useful for us to realise what's going on. What was Jonah's motivation for running? Because Nineveh are the enemy. And Jonah hates them. Let's recap for a second the enmity that, that, that Jonah would have in Nineveh. See, the Assyrians first invaded Israel in about 841 BC, a generation or two before Jonah's time. There was ongoing skirmishes. Nineveh were evil. They treated their prisoners. They treated everyone like rubbish. Okay? Jonah's been preaching here around 780 to 750, somewhere in that mark BC. Assyria invades again in 740 BC. Now, in 722 BC, which is after this time, the northern kingdom would be completely overrun by Assyria. And the ten tribes would be lost to history as they are to this day. Nineveh would be destroyed 150 years after Jonah in 612 BC. Now, Isaiah 10 verse 5 says that Assyria is the rod in the hand of God. But they're also genuinely atrocious people. So Jonah ran because Nineveh was the enemy, not because he was scared. And now he's angry because he saw it coming. He foresaw that if Nineveh repented, that God in his unchanging nature was going to forgive them. He would allow them to continue. But there's something else going on here. Have you ever noticed that the people who are most angry are often the people who are most wrong? Have you seen that? I've seen it. I've been that person. In psychology land, they call it projection. Where you're so busy trying to deny your own faults that you start accusing others around you of the things that you're actually doing. Jonah's a prophet, remember that. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And whilst while we have recorded his mission to Nineveh, he would stand to reason that he was also preaching repentance to Israel. And what's happening? He's hearing his contemporaries do the same. And what's happening? Did they listen? No. His own people, who had seen all the blessings of God, were not repenting. His own brothers, his aunties, his uncles, his cousins, his sisters, his mum and dad maybe, were continuing to ignore God's prompting. And he could see that they themselves were heading for destruction 
God's own chosen people were heading for destruction. And now God wants to give these guys a chance? The point is this. Anger so often is irrational. Sometimes it comes from fear. Sometimes from grief. Sometimes from disappointment. Rarely is our anger, our anger justified. James tells us that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. James 1.20. So my question is, how do you go with this? It's easy to get caught up in anger. But anger destroys relationships. And as we see here, it blinds us to the truth. Because while Jonah may feel justified in his enmity, and he's a little bit right, he's also dead wrong. And it's messing up his world. There's one guy in scripture who would have a lot of right to feel angry if anyone does, and that's King David with Saul. Do you remember while Saul was, was still king, David had already been told he's going to be king. And, and Saul's enraged with jealousy, right? And Saul's constantly out to get David. He's chasing him around the countryside. On one occasion in um, 1 Samuel chapter 24, David runs away to En Gedi, these caves in En Gedi in the south, in the south of Israel. And Saul hears that he's in that area. And so Saul takes 3,000 men to go and kill David. 3,000 men. Do you remember where they meet? Do you remember the story? So Saul goes into the cave. Do you know why he goes into the cave? He goes to the cave to relieve himself, basically. And what, what happens? David and his men are in that cave. And they've got, they've got night vision because they're right deep in the cave. Saul's kind of a little bit day-blinded. He walks into the cave. And David's there and his men are like, get him. You've got to get him. God's given him into your hands. This is your opportunity. You can relieve the suffering of us. You can relieve your own suffering. You can take revenge and it would be God's own justice. What does David say? Well, he sneaks up with a dagger. And he cuts the corner of Saul's robe. Right? He doesn't kill him. Saul walks out. David walks to the mouth of the cave and says, Hey, Saul, I'm here. And look, here's the corner of your robe. David had every right to be angry, but what does he do instead of being angry? He's gracious. And he seeks reconciliation with Saul. He takes the corner of his cloak so that he can say, This is my intention for you, Saul. I'm not out to get you. Can we get along? Right? David is so keen on repentance. So keen on reconciliation, so merciful. And this is what makes David one of the greatest kings of Israel. These moments where he hears God's prompting to be gracious. Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 24, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now the reality is, if we're angry, it's often with those closest to us, right? So how much more should this apply? Bless those with whom you're angry. Love them, do good to them and pray for them. So the question is, who in your life do you find most frustrating? You don't have to say it out loud. It would probably be unhelpful. How do you go applying grace to that person? 
how do you go giving the benefit of the doubt? Of seeing their best intention. Of forgiving them, even when they don't deserve it. After all, we are all called to forgive as he forgave us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 32 that very thing. It's such a contrast to Jonah, isn't it? He's stirred up in anger and anger makes us feel, say and do some really messed up things. And so Jonah continues in 4.3 with his little, his little speech to God. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. Take my life from me. Why? Well, I think partly because he's not thinking straight as we've seen. He's blinded by his anger. But maybe there's more to the story for that than Jonah. Eh? As you consider, I guess, the situation from Jonah's account, and I think that his contemporaries would have understood this, Jonah, in a sense, probably feels like he's betrayed his nation. God has called him to pursue grace over nationalism. You see, he could see that Assyria was coming for Israel. But if they were wiped out, then they were no longer a threat. So he might believe himself a traitor to his nation. I'm not convinced here that Jonah was really wanting to die, except maybe in that very brief moment, but rather that he was, number one, being quite dramatic, and number two, probably trying to manipulate God. He may be God's prophet, but I think he's also demonstrably a slow learner. And to be honest, I can relate to that. Remember one thing Jonah doesn't have. What is it? It's the indwelling spirit of God. So I need to be careful here not to criticise him too harshly. Because it seems like I probably have less of an excuse than he does, to be honest. The simple fact is that in this very moment, Jonah is missing the big picture. See, how does God respond? And, And I think this is quite amazing, really. Because God would be completely justified in slamming Jonah, right? In showing him in no uncertain terms how far he's missed the mark. But what does God say in chapter 4, verse 4? The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? Well, from here, we'll go on to demonstrate to Jonah, God will, the inappropriateness of his anger. That's for next week. Dave Deacon's going to be teaching us about that. But for now... In this moment, God just responds in grace. The message is this. Even in our unfaithfulness, in our selfishness, God meets us with grace. Jonah, like us, turns out to be just like Nineveh. In complete and desperate need of God's grace. And this is the big message for today. We need God's grace. The truth is God's grace is in fact unfair. God's grace is unfair, but it maintains perfect justice because someone received the penalty, but it wasn't the one who deserved the penalty. It is unfair, but it's merciful. It's unfair, but it's also really good. Do you realise that the sins of repentant Nineveh were laid upon Jesus? 120,000 people repented and their sins were laid on Jesus Christ. Just like yours and mine. Assuming you've put your faith in him. And then there's Jonah's accusation, which interestingly becomes the firm foundation of our relationship with God. What did he say? He said, for I knew 
that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is the God that pursues us, who sent his own version of Jonah in the form of his own son, the perfect sacrifice, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the one who died for us and not only died but conquered death. But see, grace demands a response. Specifically, repentance. And we can respond by receiving grace or we can respond by rejecting grace. And it's true that there's an initial repentance when you first realise your need for a saviour. But the fact is we need to continue in our repentance. So is there anything that God might be saying to you now? Any area that he might be calling you to bring before him? Remembering one thing, he is gracious. And the truth is most of us have received that initial saving grace. But the question is, what then? Do you take that gift, do you put it in your backpack, save it for a rainy day and keep on walking? It's the most wonderful gift you could possibly have. It is the gift of life itself. No, you appreciate that gift. It is your life. And you live from that appreciation. That's what it means to live a life of grace toward others. This is what will set you apart to fulfill the call that God has on your life. Calvary Chapel, as we step out of here and into the week ahead, at work, at home, at school, and with each other as a church, are we going to live the life of grace? Are we going to live from the grace that God has shown us? Because we have a choice. We have a choice. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, Lord God, that you love us so much that you sent your Son to die for us, to conquer death and to lead us in new life. Lord, we, um, we want to do a better job of living out of that gracious life. I thank you that Jonah, who, um, you know, despite looking like a bit of a noob in this book, the fact is we wouldn't have got the book unless he wrote it down for us. And that says something about his future after this book. It says that there's very likely that he did learn his lesson, he repented. And so like Jonah, we're a bit slow on the uptake at times. Lord, I ask that you would teach us. That you would continue to pursue as I know you will. And that we would hear the prompting. That we would hear your plans for us and respond. Lord, help us to appreciate your grace and extend that grace to those around us. I pray in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.